The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Chris Jones. He is a retired research engineer at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, where he managed a water quality sensor network that measures nitrate, turbidity of our streams and rivers, phosphorus, and more. He holds a PhD in analytical chemistry from Montana State University in Bozeman and a BA in chemistry and biology from Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa. Prior to joining the University of Iowa, Dr. Jones worked with the Des Moines Waterworks and was an environmental scientist for the Iowa Soybean Association. He is the author of The Swine Republic, Struggles with the Truth About Agriculture and Water Quality, which is basically a collection of controversial blog posts that connect the dots between agriculture and water quality, as well as the forces behind food and farming policy, and even our freedom of speech. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Melinda, thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Well, I'm very interested in water quality because water is our most important nutrient. And I don't know that we always think about it like that. I think we tend to take it for granted that we turn on the tap and what comes out is going to be safe for us to drink. I want to know how you became interested in water quality. Well, when I went to graduate school in the 80s, environmental science or environmental studies weren't recognized discipline at many institutions in the country. And so if you were interested in environmental science, at that time, what you studied was analytical chemistry. And so we were still at that time trying to characterize the depletion of the ozone layer from the chlorofluorocarbons, uh, PCBs, and chlorinated pesticides were still a big issue and really an emerging issue still at that time. And so if you're interested in these sorts of things, analytical chemistry was a common discipline to study. And so when I went to grad school, my advisor was actually an atmospheric chemist, and that's what I worked on following grad school. The paths that my career took me were more focused on water and especially municipal drinking water and municipal wastewater treatment early on, and then more surface and groundwater quality towards the end of my career. Now, I mentioned that you had been manager of the Water Quality Sensor Network. Can you describe what that is? Sure. So the University of Iowa operated a water quality sensor network at about 70 stations, and these were mostly in streams. Sites were dispersed across the state of Iowa. As you mentioned in the intro, at all the stations, we were measuring nitrate, and then at a subset of the stations, we were measuring phosphorus and turbidity and dissolved oxygen and conductivity and some other things. And the great thing about this was actually the web platform that harvested the data and daylighted the data for the average user. So if you wanted to see what water quality is right now at one of these sites, you could go to the website and see that, that, for example, the Raccoon River in West Central Iowa, the nitrate might be 6.0. 
Uh, you could go and see that right now. And so there was really nothing like this in the world. There were sensors deployed in other places, but did not have the benefit of this really useful web platform that allowed the user to learn a lot about Iowa and Iowa's water quality. So does the water quality that is measured at these sensor sites, is it a predictor of water quality at the tap? Well, you shouldn't make any conclusions about your tap water based on the sensor data. But that being said, let's look at Des Moines, for example. Des Moines uses the Raccoon and Des Moines River. And is the quality of the water at the tap, does it correlate with the quality of water in the rivers? It absolutely does, yes. And so for nitrate, for example, it's one of the regulated parameters under the Safe Drinking Water Act. The maximum limit is 10 And so if a public water supply is delivering water to a community, the most nitrate it can have is 10 parts per million. Well, a utility that's treating water that's high nitrate, and let's say the Raccoon River is 15 parts per million of nitrate, the utility is only going to bring it down below 10. And so once it's below 10, 9.9, for example, it would be considered adequate. And so Does a nitrate at the tap correlate with nitrate at the source? Yes, it does, but you should not look at the source water data. That would be the stream and make a conclusion that that's the nitrate that's in your tap. Does the Iowa Department of Health work cooperatively with this sensor network to keep a handle on public health as it relates to water quality? In Iowa, municipal drinking water is regulated by our Department of Natural Resources. So I know that they do look at the sensor data and use it. And in fact, Iowa DNR purchased some of the equipment that's deployed around Iowa in the sensor network. That being said, at the University of Iowa, we're not talking to DNR people on any sort of regular basis about the sensor data or what it means. But I am certain that they go to the website and do see what various sites are measuring. Well, I bring up the public health component because, as I mentioned earlier, water is our most important nutrient and contamination rates are predictive of health concerns. And I thought it was interesting that Iowa, in the middle of the country, agricultural state, if you drive through, you see lots of green Iowa has the second highest cancer rate in the United States. And one has to wonder what is uniquely going on in Iowa. I read a report about this in the, I believe it was the Iowa Gazette, and there was no mention of the connection between what's happening agriculturally and how that might be impacting cancer rates. So that's right. This was a big story here that Iowa had the second highest cancer rate in the U.S. And in fact, we're the only state where the cancer rate is increasing. And so when we look at a large population like a U.S. state, it's difficult to make definitive statements about that and say, well, it's because of agricultural chemicals or cigarette smoking or age or personal lifestyle and so forth. But certainly, this does beg the question, is there a correlation between the cancer rate and the use of agricultural chemicals here? And I would say the larger question might be just the overall 
degradation of our environment. And so we've had almost all of our landscape has been disturbed by agricultural practices. And so what we do here, it's everywhere. It's very difficult to get away from it. We smell the smells of agriculture in the middle of our biggest cities. And so certainly I think it's reasonable to conclude that what's going on here may be contributing. But I have no data or no published science that says this second highest cancer rate is related to what we're doing here for agriculture. Mm. Well, it's interesting, in case our listeners are wondering, the number one highest state is Kentucky, and those cancer rates were connected to tobacco use. So I think it is absolutely reasonable for us to be considering what's happening in agriculture, especially since there's a growing body of evidence linking agricultural environments to cancer rates and other illnesses. But let me dive into some of the other questions I have for you, and it has to do with why what happens in Iowa matters to every single listener across the country. Why is what's going on in Iowa so important to the country? Well, we're this country's largest producer of pork. We're the number one egg producer. We're quite often the number one producer of corn and the number one producer of soybeans. And then we also have a sizable beef industry. We have 4 million beef cattle, 5 million turkeys, 4 million broiler chickens, We also have a sizable dairy industry, 220,000 dairy cattle. And so we have a very intense level of production here. And so about 85% of our land is committed to some form of agricultural production. And for an area the size of Iowa, that is a huge number. And the environmental consequences of producing at that scale go way beyond our borders. And so we pollute at the continental scale. And so all our water ultimately drains to the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico. And we know that there's a dead zone off the coast of Louisiana and Mississippi that's caused by nutrients from Iowa and other Corn Belt states. And so what we do here is affecting things 2,000 miles away. And as I say, we're killing off part of an ocean 2,000 miles away. And what do you think about that? you come to the conclusion that there must be something we're doing here that's not right. Yeah. Well, you know, I was surprised to learn from one of your presentations, which I will post to our show notes, that 70% of Iowa is farmed as corn and soy rotations. 70%? Yeah, that's right. And so you know, we know nature likes diversity, right? And so over 70% of our land, we only have two species out there and they're annual species. And those annual species have displaced perennial species. And so what we have here, again, is very highly disturbed. We've basically extirpated three ecosystems to do this here, the tall grass prairie, the wetlands, and the oak savanna. And So, yeah, this is the most altered place on Earth, for sure. Well, I thought it was interesting in your presentation. You mentioned that just by including oats, I believe it was the example, into a soy corn rotation, you could decrease herbicide use by 97%. You could reduce nitrogen fertilizer by 91%, increase soil health, and reduce the nitrates that are coming off of the agricultural tile network just by extending the rotation with one crop. 
Did I understand that correctly? So it's actually going from the two-year rotation of corn and soybean to a five-year rotation of corn, soybean, oats, and then two years of alfalfa. And so, the, yes, that's right. If we just would grow a larger diversity of crops, it would solve a lot of our environmental problems. And so even our insect pests here in the Corn Belt, I know this is hard to believe, but it's true. They've already evolved to synchronize with the two-year rotation. And so we have insects and also weeds, I believe, that are synchronized with the corn-soy rotation. And so by creating diversity on the farm, you do all sorts of positive things for the soil, for the water, for insect populations, for bird populations, and so forth. And so the corn-soy system is a very sterile sort of ecosystem, if we can even call it that. Yeah, it's extremely eye-opening to see some of these statistics. And what a difference just a tiny bit of biodiversity can introduce. Let me take one break, Dr. Jones. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Dr. Chris Jones. He's a retired research engineer at the University of Iowa, where he managed a water quality sensor network. And he also is the author of a brand new book titled The Swine Republic, Struggles with the Truth About Agriculture and Water Quality. I want to mention one component of the corn and soy rotation, and that is the corn that is raised for ethanol. And this is a problem because, again, it's part of that monoculture system, but it also creates a whole other layer of problems, not the least of which is an increased amount of greenhouse gas emissions. What do you want our listeners to know about ethanol? Well, I think people should know that an enormous amount of effort goes into producing fuel ethanol for our cars with very little benefit from an environmental perspective. And so about 60% of our corn here in Iowa goes to produce ethanol, which, you know, that's a huge amount of corn. And so we have 99 counties here. We have an area of land of about 20 counties that's used just to produce corn ethanol. And so when we look at ethanol and all the environmental consequences that result from corn production, and so that would be soil erosion and degraded water quality, there's some air quality degradation, a lot of fossil fuel is used to produce corn, both to operate the machinery and produce nitrogen fertilizers and then the pesticides. The environmental consequences for growing corn are very high, and so to make that worth it, we would hope that the environmental benefit of ethanol would also be very high. But the truth is, it isn't. And so we've seen recent research. Last year, a paper was published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences by researchers at the University of Wisconsin, actually show greenhouse gas emissions increasing 24% with ethanol versus a gasoline. And so we really are not seeing any environmental benefit from doing this. And so why are we doing it? It does not make sense. And people really should understand the environmental consequences of doing this in these Cornville states. It's, it's very high. And Dr. Jones, I'll provide a link to that paper. I believe the one you're referencing is Environmental Outcomes of the U.S. Renewable Fuel Standard. That's and- right. 
You mentioned in your talk that the authors of this paper took a lot of heat for this. Why would they take a lot of heat for simply reporting good scientific data? Well, this has been something that's not new. Researchers that publish research honestly and forthrightly that is critical of existing production systems in agriculture oftentimes do suffer some negative consequences. And that was true with these guys too. And so what that tells me when the industry is so sensitive to these sorts of things and can tolerate basically no dissent, to me that that says they're pretty insecure about what they're doing. And I think that's the case for sure on ethanol and a whole variety of different topics in agriculture. Right. Well, I want to talk about nitrate as it relates to water quality and where it comes from, as well as getting back to the cancer report. You had said in one of the presentations that you gave that levels below 10 parts per million, even though that's the standard, levels below that amount have health consequences. So at three parts per million, we see an increased risk for cancer. Did I hear that correctly? There's some research that's showing levels that low potentially do correlate with cancer cases, yes. Where does the nitrate come from specifically? I mean, I know we, we use nitrogen fertilizer, but we should also talk about the hog population and how that might contribute to nitrate contamination as well. Well, the average person does really equate stream nitrate with fertilizer runoff, and that's only part of the story. It's the entire cropping system that generates stream nitrate. And so one of the issues we have here in Iowa is we've altered our hydrology. We drain the fields off using underground porous pipes. And so as nitrate, nitrogen infiltrates the soil profile, it reaches this drainage tile and the drainage tile discharges to a nearby ditch or stream. And so that's how nitrogen enters the stream network. Now, without the drainage tile, we know in many places in Iowa that don't need drainage tile, where corn is grown, the nitrate can be actually quite low. And so it's not just the fertilizer, it's not just the manure, it's also the hydrology and the way we manage the water and how we've altered the hydrology across the landscape. As far as the health consequences Nitrate was one of the first 20 or so regulated contaminants under the Safe Drinking Water Act going back to 1974, and that 10 part per million limit was intended to be protective of infants. And so we knew at that time that infants that were drinking baby formula that was prepared with high nitrate water were at an increased risk of blue baby syndrome, and so the nitrate gets converted to nitrite in their digestive system, the nitrite then competes in their bloodstream for oxygen with hemoglobin, and so the infant doesn't get enough oxygen. And so that's what the standard was intended to address. But since then, we see research from the EU and also here in the U.S., Wisconsin especially, where lower levels of nitrate in drinking water, lower than 10, do correlate with health consequences for adults. And so we also saw this in Iowa about 20 years ago, a study at the University of Iowa showed an association between nitrate and drinking water and bladder cancer in women. And so it does appear that there are health consequences for adults that drink high nitrate water. 
EPA was going to review the nitrate standard a few years ago, but for some reason that review process was dropped for the contaminant, and I don't really know where that's at right now. Hmm. Well, it's a good idea for us to be familiar with these contaminants and where they're coming from. I want to talk about hogs because I think you mentioned earlier in our conversation the issue of farming to scale. And I think it's interesting when we look at fecal material that comes from humans versus hogs. And you even report in one of your blogs that human waste is treated before it re-enters the environment. But with hog manure, it is applied to land the way it comes out of the animal. So there's no treatment prior to application to the soil. There are 25 million hogs in Iowa, and you have a map in your book showing population equivalents. So like a watershed in one part of Iowa would have the population equivalent of Tokyo in terms of fecal waste. Let's talk about that. So when you look at all our livestock animals, and hogs are our main livestock animal, when we convert the fecal waste of all our animals, not just the hogs, but all the other ones too, to a human equivalent, the state as a whole has about 168 million people in terms of its fecal waste, even though only 3 million actual human beings live here. And so, yes, our animals excrete a lot of waste. Yes, it is applied untreated. And, you know, I always tell people, look, I'm not against manure. You know, organic farming, that's fertilizing with animal manure. The issue we have is the intensity of production. And so at any one time, we have 25 million hogs here. But actually, a hog reaches market weight at six months. And so in a given year, we produce about 50 million hogs or send about 50 million hogs to slaughter. And so we have a lot of animals here. And so as a consequence of the way we raise animals in these confined systems, the manure becomes very difficult to manage for an individual farmer. And so in 1980, the average Iowa farmer that raised hogs had 200. Now the average Iowa farmer that raises hogs has almost 5,000. And so managing this is really a colossal task and finding fields to apply the material can be difficult in areas of the state where the density of animals is high. And as a result, we see our worst water quality in areas where hog production is most intense. Well, I want to make sure our listeners have a chance to really understand the full scope of the problem with hogs, as well as ethanol and what we could be planting instead of ethanol. I thought that was a brilliant observation that you made about how Iowa could be once again a leader in apple production, a leader in cherries, onions, potatoes, all of the kinds of foods that I as a dietitian recommend people eat to protect their health instead of having this insane level of corn and soy and hog production. But we just have a few minutes left, and I really want to get to a point, and that is that you cite George Orwell a lot. What is it about George Orwell that appeals to you? Well, what I like about Orwell is that what he wrote seems like it could have been written yesterday. So when you write something and it stays true for a century, I think you know that you wrote something good and important. And so that's what I like about Orwell. He understood 
what propaganda was and what the intention was. And I think we see so much of this in our country nowadays with all the discussion of fake news and how propaganda is so much part of our lives these days. And it very much is part of agriculture. And so agriculture, all the advocacy organizations in agriculture, of which there are many, are continuously trying to portray the industry and its products in a positive light to the American public. And that's fine. Lots of industries do that. But as part of that process, there also tends to be a glossing over of the environmental consequences of doing this. And so this is all a very artful thing that the industry has constructed to make the American public view the American farmer in a positive light and sort of turn a blind eye to the environmental consequences. And so I do tie back to Orwell quite a bit because I do see the things that Orwell talked about here in our own system of agriculture and food production. Mm -hmm. You make a point that almost none of the decisions driving the current production system were made with the nutritional or caloric needs of human beings in mind. Rather, the system has been designed for commerce. And you also recommend that people simply start talking about this. And yet there is a reluctance to do so. Why is that? Well, I think here in Iowa, agriculture is embedded in our culture. And so we don't have nearly the number of farmers that we used to, but all of us, especially people in my generation, know someone that farmed or had a relative that farmed or we grew up on a farm. We had that connection to the farm. And so as a consequence, we tend to think very positively about it. And of course, farming now is completely different than what it was when I was growing up in the 60s. And so I think we really need to talk about what Iowa agriculture is now. And is it the production of food? Well, maybe. I mean, we produce meat, protein, and eggs for the world's wealthy people. And then we produce fuel ethanol for our cars. And as you say, we have a system here now that's not designed for human nutrition or environmental outcomes. We have one that's designed for commerce. And so that's the only way you can explain why we do ethanol. And so when we look, for example, at the number of calories from the corn that goes into ethanol production in this country, it exceeds the caloric needs of every person in the United States. And so to think that we're doing what we're doing here to feed people just is not honest. And so I think going forward, as we face all these challenging environmental problems at the continental and global scale, we need to look at these systems and think, geez, is what we're doing here really good for the planet? And is it good for our bodies? Or is it just good for the bank accounts of a select few people? And I think that is really what the state of Iowa needs to look at really carefully and other places in the country as well. I agree. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I will provide a link not only to the excellent talk you gave in Fairfield, Iowa, but also to your Substack blog and a link to the Swine Republic. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Chris Jones, 
retired research engineer at the University of Iowa, where he managed a water quality sensor network. He is the author of The Swine Republic, Struggles with the Truth About Agriculture and Water Quality. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for being my guest and connecting these important dots. Okay, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.